following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 10, 1 through 17. I got you. There we Thank go. you. <laughs> While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives." Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashiel, and Jaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Mashalam and Shabbathiah, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. 
On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter, and by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Um, this might be the strangest Mother's Day sermon of all time. This might be. Um, you might call it poor planning. I like to call it God's providence, okay, and how this falls. Um, but we have landed on a passage that is really hard to understand. From our perspective, modern 21st century listeners, readers, we look at this and we scratch our head and there is so much to wonder what is happening. Now, I want to look at this as glass half full. Um, I think that this passage is kind of fitting because, let me explain, because the underlying sentiment of Ezra's chapter 9 and 10 is that wives and mothers carry a tremendous amount of influence. All right, glass half full here. Wives and mothers carry a tremendous amount of influence. In fact, if you go to the photo booth, we've got a little gift, a little uh, photo thing for you. There's a quote from Billy Sunday that says, in a mother's hand, there is more power than in a king's scepter. Mothers have power have influence over their households. Now, when she's a godly woman, when she loves the Lord, obeys the Lord, what a treasure. Proverbs 31 says that she is more precious than jewels. She's clothed in dignity and strength. Her lips are loaded with wisdom. Her works radiate her glory. Her husband blesses her. Her children praise her. This is the kind of influence, this is, this is the power of a mother that her nurture, her presence, her wise instruction is used powerfully to advance the kingdom of God amongst the next generation. And I, for one, am so thankful for the bounty of godly women here at Sacred City Moline. Praise God. Now, while Ezra 9 and 10 assert this tremendous amount of influence that mothers and wives have, unfortunately, this is glass half empty here, we don't see the positive portrayal of this. We don't see the Proverbs 31 woman. In fact, we see the antithesis to the Proverbs 31 woman. We see women, as, as they identify them as the foreign wives, and we'll unpack this here in a minute, these are women who are pagan women. They do not love and obey the Lord, the God of Israel. These women are seeped in idol worship. They're, they're pagans. And because of this, they have a house divided. Now, you drive around the Quad Cities, and you might see these flags that are waving out in front of people's houses. That, you know, it says house divided, and they got Iowa and Iowa State or, or Green Bay Packers and the Chicago Bears, right? That's the kind of households divided. Well, the kind of household divided that we see here in Ezra chapter 9 and 10, is a spiritual division, the most pressing, most pertinent kind of division, the most devastating kind of division. Anybody can get over a sports rivalry, but this is the foundation for life. 
You have Israelites who are committed to worshiping Yahweh, and you have their foreign wives who are steeped in pagan idol worship. And when you bring them together, you get a dysfunctional household, which will have repercussions into the next generation. And what God tells his people, he actually warns them not to do, not just a warn, but gives a command to not marry these pagan women because it will be to their destruction. There will be a slow unraveling of true worship of Yahweh. And before you know it, they'll be in the deep pit of hell. And what makes this very unpleasant for Mother's Day is by the end of chapter 10, there has been a resolution to put away their foreign wives and their foreign children. Like, we're talking mass divorce here. Now, ufta, right? Happy Mother's Day. That, that's a hard sell. And this is not a typical Mother's Day sermon because we are finding ourselves on the home stretch of the book of Ezra. We've been going through this Old Testament book uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, for the last several months. And we are, this is, we've got one more Sunday after this before this story wraps itself up. And to understand what's going on here, we have to have a quick debriefing of everything else that has transpired. So buckle up. I'm going to take us through about 70 years of history here as we make our through. First, the story of Ezra. The story of Ezra begins with uh, God's people. Um, because of their faithfulness, faithlessness, have been exiled to the pagan city of Babylon, 500 miles away from Jerusalem. Now, God had, this is, this is God's sovereignty, his providence, his judgment. God sent the Babylonians into Jerusalem to level the city, to destroy the temple, the, the sort of, the, the place that was evident where God was among his people, and then they took the people away. The story starts there in exile. And then we see God stirring up in the hearts of men for them to return back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the ruins, to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple of God so that they can worship God rightly. Now, as they go, there's a first wave of people who go and they're loaded with treasures. They've got all the resources they need. The king has made provisions for them, which is crazy. As they go, they face opposition. They're trying to build this temple. Their neighbors say, we don't like it and you get a bit of confrontation there. But God allowed them to persevere, to press on, and by the end of chapter six, the temple is built, and God's people can worship rightly. Great. Well, when you turn over to chapter seven, we're introduced to Ezra, who, who the book is named after. And more than just rebuilding the temple, Ezra comes with the mission of rebuilding the society. Or in other words, Ezra comes to Jerusalem to reform the entire city of Jerusalem according to the word of God. He's sent to teach the word of God. He's a man who is skilled in the word. He's like a lawyer of the Old Testament law. He knows it well. He loves it. He is, his desire is to teach it to the peoples. And as he goes back to Jerusalem, he's trying to show them what all of life worship looks like. Our tendency is to think of worship as compartmentalized, that, that we worship only on Sunday mornings. That's, that's one time of the week that we get together and worship, but the Bible teaches that we are worshiping all the time. There is never a moment in your life where you are not worshiping something. The question is, what or who is it that you're worshiping? 
Now, Christians are called to be intentional about this all of life, all life-encompassing worship. Romans 12 talks about living your life as a living sacrifice, right? That's worship language. And the question that Ezra comes to answer is, what does that look like in the day-to-day life? What does it look like to be a day-to-day worshiper of Yahweh? Now, the goal of all this is to reform the society, to bring the Israelites into an expression of what it would be like if the kingdom of heaven unfolded right there in the streets of Jerusalem. Now, this, this goal of reforming a society is noble. It's an exciting work. Like who, who wouldn't get pumped up about earth being more like heaven, right? It's a great thing to aspire to. But what we see is as Ezra gets going, it's a massive undertaking, like maybe, maybe you've done a renovation project in your house or maybe you know, an entire house. You know that it takes time to do this. We're talking about an entire civilization, an entire society being flipped upside down to being reordered, restructured according to the word of God. And as Ezra gets started, he's only there for a few months. By chapter nine, this big mission, this big, big goal that they set out in front of them, it meets their first major snag. And, and as Ezra brushes up against this, it ruins him, right? He, he comes there with these lofty goals. Here we go. We're going to flip the world upside down. And boom, nope, we just hit a roadblock. Now, this brings Ezra to his knees. We heard this last week. He's brought to his knees. He tears his clothes. He, he's so distressed. He's pulling out his hair, pulling out his beard. This is a sign of, of like the heaviest kind of lament. He's fasting, not eating, not drinking. We saw that in in verse 10 here, or chapter 10. He's crying out to God. He's confessing sin. Not just, it wasn't Ezra's sin, but the sin of the people. He had this corporate mentality about the sin that had transpired and how as a people, that guilt was upon them. Now, what is this sin? What is it that wrecks Ezra? Well, back in Exodus chapter 34, In Deuteronomy 7, God commands his people, the Israelites, as they're making their way into the promised land, not to intermarry or to mix with foreign neighbors. This is a cadence that gets repeated. As God's people go in, he's intended for them to be a holy nation, a sacred people set apart. Oh my goodness, I just about choked on my spit. He wanted his people to be set apart, distinct from the other cultures, distinct from the other nationalities, distinct from the other world religions that they are in circulation around them. Now, what we see here is is sort of a a repeat of of what happened back as they initially were coming out of Egypt into the promised land, and here they're coming out of Babylon into Egypt the promised land, both coming out of pagan nations to move into a more God-centered civilization. This time, as they return to Jerusalem, God's people have broken God's command. Now, we're not exactly sure if this was an intentional breaking of the command. It's most likely that this was, was accidental or, or just out of ignorance. They just simply didn't know that that was put out there. 
And so we see that not only some of the people of Israel have married foreign wives, we see that some of the leaders, some of the religious leaders, the civil leaders, are the ones who are guilty of breaking this command. Now, if you're trying to reform a society, it's hard to do that if the people, especially the leaders, are going against the grain of God's design. And so Ezra finds this big problem. Now, before you look at this and label God as a bigot, right? What do you mean you can't intermarry? What what is this about? Our society has this tendency to look at God and point the finger like he's the bad guy, like he doesn't know what he's doing. We couldn't be more mistaken. Because what's happening here in God uh, commanding his people not to mix in marriage or intermarry with these pagan wives This is different from the anti-miscegenation laws from U.S. history. These laws that prohibited white folk and black folk from intermarrying. Now, this was rightly repealed by the Supreme Court back in 1967. It was the right move, much like the the pending uh, repeal of Roe versus Wade coming down the pipe that is the right move that honors God. But that, that repeal of those unjust laws were the right thing. And unlike these anti-miscegenation laws that we see in US history, these laws that God gives his people are not at all about skin color. In fact, their neighboring city people are, are more than likely to look a lot like them. Has nothing to do with appearance like these anti-miscegenation laws did. This is all about spiritual integrity. God commands his people not to mix oil and water. You have two different massively conflicting worldviews if you are to worship Yahweh and the profession is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you go over to pagan worship, which you have either a plurality of gods or or maybe you have a little bit of the Yahweh God, the the Jewish God, but he's also uh, working together with these other gods that we've created. It, It just doesn't work. It's oil and water. And so God prohibits this, uh, this sort of activity, this behavior, um, not, not only to protect his people, but to help them become more fully devoted to the God who has saved them. The thing with the foreign nations is that they did not worship Yahweh. They, they were devoted to pagan uh, idol worshipers. They, and, and if the Jewish people were to marry into that without those, their counterpart experiencing true conversion, there is a giant compromise that they're set up for here. It's what they call syncretism, where I have my little worldview, my religious views, and you have yours, and we're going to blend them together, and we're going to be as, as open-handed with things as possible. The thing, though, is with that, there are some non-negotiable things about who God is and who we are as his people that have to be let go of in order to adopt pagan ideology. It's problematic, to, to make a, a, a covenant, to, to enter life, to build your life with somebody that does not hold the same worldview, the same faith convictions as you, will lead to a life that will undermine true faith in Yahweh. And as that works itself out, it's a slippery slope. You move further and further and further away from true faith. This law that God gives though we may not understand this initially, 
The law that God gives in Deuteronomy 7, Exodus 34, was meant to protect them, was meant to set up God's people for the generations so that they could make known the excellencies of him who saved them. Now, you might think, well, you could have at least said it better, right? <laughs> um, if, if it seems like it's about culture. It seems like it's about ethnicity, and it's not about that. And we actually see that this same sort of principle carries on into the New Testament. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, he says, to Christians, mind you, speaking to Christians, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? That's a, that's a pagan God. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And he asserts this, Paul says, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, and he's quoting the Old Testament here, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. He's saying separate yourself. Don't integrate into their life. Retain your distinctiveness. Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The Apostle Paul says what, what the, the Old Testament law has, has spoken to, that if you marry into this, if you intertwine your life with somebody who has a conflicting spiritual belief from you, their idolatry, their, their, their worldview comes with them. And if you coexist in the same household, what will happen over time, they just can't be neutral. It, it, it doesn't, like, hey, well, this doesn't work. If one, of, one, of, one spouse says, hey, I don't really care about this religion stuff, you do what you want. Well, that, that itself is a worldview. And there's no neutrality. That is going to inf infect the, the, the household. It's going to have an impact on the, the culture of the home. And it will either undermine your faith or set a trajectory for your kids' faith. It is dangerous. This is what the Lord was warning his people against. And we're seeing this unfold in real time, Ezra's real time, in Jerusalem. This is a big issue. This will be for sure what stops, what brings the societal reform to a halt if it goes unchecked. Now, we have to understand this. So we're introduced to this complicated issue. We have to understand why is this, why did this thing get brought up? How is this that this sin became revealed to them? How is it that it got exposed? The reason why is because the word of God was working. The word of God was working. Ezra came back to Jerusalem to instruct the Israelites in the word of God, teaching them to obey God's commands. He's teaching them what it looks like to live a life where you love God and love neighbor. The, the vertical aspect of loving God with all your all, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, to not have any idols, to honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, 
but also to have this horizontal, the, the civil aspect of what it looks like to love God, to love your neighbor as yourself. These two commands, Jesus says, all of the, the Old Testament, all of the laws of the Testament, Old Testament ride on these two laws. The word of God brought this sin to the light. Now, it's likely that it got brought to the light as Ezra was teaching his people through the Exodus story, right? You read Exodus 34, 34, you read Deuteronomy 7, those things are going to kind of pop off the page at you, especially if so much of your story runs in parallel with the original Exodus story. And in this, we see that the Israelites are not just reading the word of God, the word of God is reading them. It was exposing their sin. Now, this is what real Bible reading looks like. See, we don't come to the word of God to make our critical assessments of the word of God. We don't stand apart from the word of God and look down and wonder, well, you know, I think that's, you know, uh, and we kind of get wishy-wash. That, that's not the posture of a Christian when it comes to the word of God. If we come to the word of God as a Christian, we become beneath the word of God. We submit to the authority of the word of God. And as we do so, the word of God cuts to the heart. Unfortunately, there are Christians who don't know how to read the Bible like this. Or, or maybe they do, and they choose not to. They don't come to hear from God. They, they don't place themselves underneath the authority of God. They don't come to hear how to best order their life it, it, to bring glory to God and praise to his name. A lot of Christians come to the Bible looking for a hype man. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like a little little jolt of motivation, a little, little bit of inspiration to give me that lift for, for the day. No, there's a place for that. And, and the scriptures have plenty of places where you can go to find encouragement, where you can get that, that, that pat on the back, the reminder of God's grace. But there's also an aspect that the word of God is meant to convict us, to show us the standard of what God requires, and at the same time, hold up a mirror and show how we have missed the mark. Now, this is not a unique thing. This is because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, when we come to the, the, the Bible, we should expect to experience some kind of confrontation, some kind of conviction. If you don't hold the word of God in such regard, you're going to miss a lot of God's grace. If you don't give God's word the weight it deserves, you become dismissive about it. What happens is we try to justify our sin in some way. Now, the bottom line here, with all the complexities of this story, is God's people are in sin. The word of God has revealed that they have broken God's commandment. They've chosen to live life on their own terms, not on God's terms. And it would be easy for them to sit back and justify why. And I think we do the same thing. I, I can think of seven ways that we try to sidestep God's conviction and justify our sin. 
Way number one is the way of modernity. I think this is probably the most common one today, where, where when we come to the scriptures, <clears throat> we hear something that conflicts with our presuppositions about the world and how it should work, and we say, we point our finger at the Bible and say, well, that's old, that's outdated, we're much more enlightened now, we're, we're much more evolved, more sophisticated. We have this chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis states it, where we kind of, we, we, we just know better now. And so we dismiss, we say, my ideas about the world and how it works are better than what God has to say. And whoosh, well, we're in the modern world. That's one way. Way number two is through the majority. Well, everybody else is doing it. God, God confronts you in your sin. Be it you're drinking too much, you're spending too much time on, on social media platforms, whatever it might be. You're not in your word. You feel that conviction. Well, everybody's doing it. It's, it's a societal norm. I mean, you see this even right now with the discussion about abortion. Like, how should Christians think about that? And there is this, you're seeing this fault line within the church itself where the debate is going back and forth. Well, it'd be easier if we just sort of, you know, join the chant of the culture. Third way we might try to justify sin sidestep God's conviction is through pleading ignorance. Now, I think there's such thing as real ignorance. Like we, like, and I'm not saying that in a, in a con, condescending way, but there's things that we do just don't know, don't know yet about the word of God. I think everybody has this, this gap of what they don't yet know. And so there's this, a place for that where you can say, well, I, I didn't know any better, and you just keep going on. But there's other people, they pretend like they didn't hear. And then they just keep, Pleading ignorance. Another way is tradition. We might say, well, it's always been like this. This is how I've learned it. This is my upbringing that set me in this pattern, and it's too hard to change. It's, 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 it's like a completely different world, a different way of living life. And so we use tradition as an excuse to sidestep con, uh, the conviction of God or convenience. This is also another big one. God's ways are not necessarily easy nor expedient. We might say that, you know, I can get what I want if I do this. If I, if I just go outside of the lines for a minute, I can get what I want, and then I'll come back to obeying God. But convenience is not a good reason to continue on in disobedience. A couple other ones. This is number six, victimhood. You can use the excuse of your own brokenness, your own hurt, to, con to, to justify your continuation in sinful ways. And beneath all these, you can connect it back to the seven one, it's just arrogance. Where you say, yeah, I hear you, God, but you don't know what you're talking about. I think I got a better grasp on this, I think my way's better. And so we kind of stick our nose up and walk away and just do our own thing, turn our backs to God. Now, when we operate in those, uh, those ways of sidestepping conviction, when we are working to justify our sins, those all reveal in us a low view of the word of God. And a low view of the word of God shows us that we don't actually revere God for who he is. See, you, you cannot separate God from his word. They come together together. And in verse three, 
Maybe one of the most positive things that we see going on in this passage, we see a mark of genuine faith where the people of God tremble at the law. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. This trembling at the word of God, acknowledging the weightiness that it comes to bear on our lives. This is a marker of genuine faith. Now, genuine faith doesn't allow you to just brush off the word of God. When you experience that conviction, it's like a pinch. Like, like literally, it just feels like your, your soul is just getting, the vices are getting clamped down a little bit. And sometimes, it might feel so severe that you feel like you're being crushed. Now, this is, this is pretty close to what Ezra was experiencing. We see genuine grief in Ezra in verse six. We see the people in verse one weeping bitterly. They, they experience the heaviness of conviction. And their realization was this. They weren't just breaking an arbitrary rule that God put out decades before. No, it wasn't just about a rule. They had broken relationship with God. Verse two says that we have broken faith with our God. They acknowledge the sin. So the word of God comes to bear on their life. They see themselves accurately. They feel the pinch. They confess their wrongdoing. They sit under their guilt. Now, Ezra feels this so strongly that he's nearly debilitated. I don't know if you see this, like the sense of grief. Now, Ezra isn't even the guy that was doing the sinny stuff. He was there as a representative of God's people, but he felt the weight of the sin as the corporate people of God so heavily that he was sort of paralyzed for a minute. And in verse four, you see other leaders calling him up. They say, arise, this is your task. So the weight of sin is real. Now you add to this, later on we'll see that they gather together and, and not only do they feel the weight of the sin, but, but like their circumstances, the weather is reflecting this. They're getting pummeled by this downpour of rain. It's like, we can't even operate. The rain is so severe. The weight of the grief is so severe. We can't even think straight. Now there are times when the spirit brings conviction in full force. There are times where the, the, the gentle whisper of God becomes a booming shout from the rafters. And whether we face little conviction, just, just a soft little prick, or the vice grips being clamped down, conviction is never meant to be punitive. Conviction is never meant to snuff us out. Conviction is meant to be restorative. God brings conviction because he loves us. And as he brings conviction, he hopes we express repentance. This, this idea where we, we were going one way, we were doing one thing that we shouldn't be doing, and we turn away and we're going the opposite direction. And once we repent, we experience God's kindness in refreshment, renewal through repentance. Now this all works because as we turn away from sin, as we turn away from doing that which we shouldn't be doing or turn away from, from not doing the things we ought to do, 
We turn away from sin to walk deeper into the arms of a loving father. To experience God's steadfast love in a way that maybe we've never expressed it or experienced it before. See, this is the kind hand of God who gently convicts us now to spare us from judgment later. Behind every single convicting word, there is a spirit of restoration. That's why the we had it today in our, our profession of faith, or, or the absolution. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The kind of confrontation, the kind of convicting that goes on amongst brothers and sisters in the faith is not to condemn, but to move towards restoration. It's to rebuild. And we see this even amongst the people in Israel in verse two, they say, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Now, what are they banking that on? They're standing there, just in chapter nine, Ezra said, all of our sin is stinking up to the heavens. It's going up over our heads. We're drowning in our sin. It's so overwhelming. Ezra's despondent. And these leaders say, even now there's hope for Israel in spite of this. On what basis can they say that? They say it on the basis of God's steadfast covenantal love. That God is with his people for the long haul, even when they're not walking with him. It's with restoration in view that the people ask the question, having seen their sin for what it was, having seen that they've broken God's laws. And it's not just like this one-time thing, it's a lifestyle of sin. Like they're living with their foreign wives that they should have never married in the first place. And they're asking, what now? We've built for ourselves a life that is displeasing to God. Do we keep going on in it? We've taken wives, we've had kids. Do we keep doing this? Their life's now enmeshed with idol worship, idol worshipers. What is their way forward? What does repentance look like in this situation? What does turning away from sin to walk with God, what does it look like? Now, this is a rock and a hard place scenario if I've ever seen one. Because what you have here is a question of two covenants. That, that's really what's on the table. Do they honor the covenant that God has made with the people of Israel? I will be your God, you will be my people, this is how you live into the covenant. Or do they honor the covenant that they've made with their foreign wives, their, their pagan wives, right? Now the Bible has a very high regard for marriage, right? It's not a contract, it's a covenant. It says that in marriage, the two become one flesh. What is joined together by God, let no man separate. We have a prophet Malachi who says that God hates divorce. Why? Why is that? Why does God hate divorce? It's because marriage was meant to tell the gospel story. This redeeming love, this covenantal love, the, the love of a, a, a husband that sticks with an unfaithful bride. And divorce cuts that redemption story short. Now, that doesn't mean that divorce is prohibited. In fact, God grants divorce as a concession for our hard hearts. Now, this, in this scenario, their hard hearts led up to it, 
right? Usually in our day and age, if divorce is on the table, things started out good and then eventually trickled out not so good. And then divorce is on the table. But here in this scenario, they shouldn't have even been been married together in the first place if they were to abide by God's law. So what do they do? That that was their hard heart, disobedience to the word of God. Well, they do what people who tremble at the word of God do. And this is hard. This is hard to wrap your mind around. The people who tremble at the word of God, they choose God. The the covenant that they have as God's people supersedes the covenant that they've made in marriage. And in faithfulness to God, and and this again, this this is hard to wrap your mind around. In faithfulness to God, they count the cost. They, they understand the toll, the invasiveness of repentance. It costs them dearly. They've built a life with another human being. They've had kids. They've got this relational impact, the pain of sending a wife away. Now, this is not ideal by any standard. It's disruptive to their life. But the stakes in this moment were too high. It was too high. Now, as we go on through Ezra 10, I'm wrapping it up here, guys. As we make our way through Ezra 10, we see that this, de- this decision to put away the foreign wives, that they make this sort of, this vow a couple of times, um, right at the beginning, in the middle, and towards the end. They talk about putting these, these foreign wives away. This was not a decision that was done flippantly. Ezra is weeping, lamenting. He calls a citywide meeting, gives everybody three days to show up. The rain's pouring. Everybody feels the weight of it. And they say, this is a matter that needs more time than just two days to sort out. And they're right. It takes two months for them as they divvy up some of the responsibilities to examine each household to see if someone has, has, has uh, broken God's command. And also part of this was they didn't want to cause an unnecessary divide. Because one of the things that God does, historically speaking, throughout all of the Old Testament into the New Testament, is that God can win pagans over. So there are some women who, who started as pagan wives worshiping idols that had been exposed to the covenant community, the steadfast love, that understood that, that God was one, and they broke allegiance with their idols and aligned themselves to Yahweh. It's these women that would be able to continue on in the covenant community as converts, people with genuine faith. And those who did not, they were sent away. Now, as off-putting as this might seem, I mean, this is like a... As off-putting as this might seem to us, this is a picture of how seriously we ought to take our sin when it is exposed. As people who tremble at the word of God, we don't make justifications for our sins. We don't sidestep the conviction, but rather we resolve to put away sin, to flee from sin, to break ties with sin because we were born into sin. Our lives have been tainted by sin. There's a sense of we're tangled up in it. 
And the life of a Christian, a faithful Jesus worshiper, is a life of putting away the old so the new can come to life. And we do this regardless of the cost. We do this regardless of how drastic this change might be. Now let me take you real quick to Colossians chapter three, verses five through 10. Paul is on the same mentality here. He's saying, put to death, therefore, what is earthly into you. Or in other words, put away that which is sinful. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, all of that stuff is idolatry. So it's not just that you got a little figurine somewhere in your house that you bow down and worship, pay homage to, light up a sac- you know, some incense. It, it are these little things that creep into our lives that function as idolatry. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then he reminds them, in these two, you once walked. When you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Boom, put off the old, put on the new. He's saying, detangle your lives from sin. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you today, Is there sin that you need to put away? Is there sin the spirit keeps poking at and and gently nudging? This is something that you need to deal with. This is something you need to confess. This is something that you must walk in repentance with. If there is, do not put it off. Take it to the Lord. Now, the Israelites, we see they repented so as to turn away God's righteous anger. This is verse 14. They're concerned that if we don't put this away, God's anger is going to fall upon us. But for us, on this side of the cross, our repentance does not come out of a fear that God will bring down the hammer, but understanding the hammer has already fallen on Christ. He has paid for my sin. All of my guilt, all of my shame was placed upon him. And now out of gratitude, I give all that away. He was the real covenant keeper who takes on God's wrath for idolaters like us. See, the the, the reality is, when we talk about, it's not just pagans who do idolatry stuff. Christians veer into that every single day, worshiping false gods that'll give us comfort and security, satisfaction, Name it. But the gospel tells us in order for our sins to be get forgiven, in order to be restored to God, we must receive by grace the faith that God gives to trust in the sacrifice of his son. And understand that we receive this grace not as a product of our own obedience, not because we were so good, not because we achieved it, but because Jesus did it for us. Now, when you see the gospel like this, when you understand what Jesus has done, this gives us spiritual power. Sin loosens its grip over us. Jesus has triumphed over sin, death, and the grave. And that power then is transplanted into our own lives, a spirit at work within us. 
And as we live in that power, it frees us from this religious uh, reflex to perform for approval from God. See, it takes that away. The gospel assures us it is by grace God smiles upon us. And from that place of knowing God's acceptance and God's love, we are free to live faithfully from the heart. This is what it looks like to experience renewal through repentance. Repentance is restorative, not punitive. And every time we have the opportunity, we should take God up on the offer for repentance because it inches us closer and closer, deeper and deeper into his steadfast love. The ongoing invitation into the kingdom of heaven is this. Jesus said at the beginning of Mark's gospel, he said, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Martin Luther reminds us, repentance and faith is not a one-time deal for the Christian. It's not a checklist item. You do it once and you get your foot in the door of heaven and you're good to go. He says the whole sum of the Christian life is that of faith and repentance of turning away from our idols, turning away from our false comforts, turning away from the things that offers just a momentary satisfaction, turning away from life as we think is best lived on our own terms and turning back to God. And each week as we come to the Lord's Supper, it is a opportunity for us to remember the gospel. It's an opportunity to see that the body of Christ was broken, his blood was shed for our sin. And as we partake in this, this is covenant renewal. This is what's going on. We've been faithless. God has been faithful. He hasn't gone anywhere. And the covenant graciously is renewed every time we come to to take of this meal. And because of this, like the Israelites, we can say, in spite of all my sin, we still have hope. Because Jesus is a powerful redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace that that we do not deserve. If anything, we deserve the wrath, your displeasure for the way that we have violated your commands. Not not just in the physical expression, but even in the, the inner chambers of our hearts, how we have this resistance towards you, God. But we pray that your love would overpower whatever resistance we have. We pray that you would break down the walls, that you would free us from the footholds that keep us from living a genuine life of faith and repentance. And God, to to bring us into that life, would you make the gospel shine even brighter, the cross of Christ, the power of of his resurrection. Make it known to us. Would this meal that we partake of now be Um, reinforcement of that reality, that that you give us something palpable, something to put into our hands, onto our tongue, something to remember you, and not just a memory, but a means of grace, a means of grace that empowers us to live a life that honors you, to be people who are reverent to the word of God, both for our own good and for your glory. And so, God, you would pray that you would raise us up into that kind of people, the kind of people that has such, there's such a weightiness to the word of God in our own lives, that we would revere you and love you and walk you, walk with you for all the days of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name.